but we know it's a trap. But we don't know it's an ocean. Hello, and welcome to the Newton Knowledge Podcast. My name is Mark Singer, partner of Newton One Advisors. I'm joined by our managing partner, as always, Steve Target. The Newton Knowledge Podcast is intended for our valued advisor community, estate planners, tax planning attorneys, CPAs, financial advisors, and wealth managers. Our discussions will deliver unique insights into the people, processes, and products that make our industry so critical. Newton One is a national life insurance planning firm delivering customized insurance solutions structured to help clients and their advisors engaged in solving estate planning, wealth transfer, business succession, and executive benefits challenges. We are a member of the M Financial Group, which grants our clients access to the nation's elite carriers and exclusive products available only through our network. Today, we have on the show a good friend of mine, Colin Devlin, who is a, an estate and tax planning attorney with LexNova. He's a partner at LexNova, um, predominantly a business and wealth management firm. Colin, it's great to have you on the show. We really appreciate you coming out here and sharing some time with us today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, appreciate the uh, invitation to the league. So before we jump in to our topic, just give us a background on yourself, your, your particular focus within your practice and, and what you guys are doing at LexNova. Sure. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm a partner at LexNova Law. Uh, we're a relatively new firm. We launched LexNova about three and a half years ago, right before the pandemic. We hold ourselves out as a one-stop shop for uh, high net worth families, closely held businesses, and uh, entrepreneurs. I practice primarily in the fields of estate planning, asset protection, and corporate law. We take pride in connecting the dots for our clients who may own a closely held business and uh, you know, taking a holistic approach with respect to their estate and business planning. Great. So... The topic today is buy-sell arrangements, understanding the, their structures, um, as well as on the planning side, pitfalls to, to be aware of or avoid. But before we jump into to those details, just can you explain to our audience what, what a buy-sell is and the importance of it on having one? Sure. So uh, essentially a buy-sell agreement is a contractual arrangement between business owners that establishes the rules and procedures regarding the transfer of interest uh, of an owner's shares in a company. Buy-sell agreements can restrict the transfer of ownership interest or sometimes even force the transfer or buyout of an owner's shares upon some triggering event, whether that be death, disability, divorce, retirement, bankruptcy, and the list could go on and on. Why is it so important to have one? I mean, I know you went over some reasons, but what essentially happens if there's not a buy-sell in place? Could you take us through that? Sure. That's, so that's, that's a good question. Um, the short answer is, uh, you know, it depends, but I can walk you through uh, a few different scenarios. I think the most common scenario that we see uh, or that I've encountered is when, you know, two partners who fail to enter into uh, a buy-sell agreement before some irreconcilable dispute arises, you know, I have a partner who calls me and says, hey, you know, I can't work with this guy anymore. What are my options? You know, the first thing we'll ask is, you know, do you have an operating agreement or a shareholders agreement, you know, with certain buy-sell provisions? If the answer is no, now we're potentially looking at a stalemate, and that's when we know that, you know, you may be in trouble. Once lawyers get involved and, you know, partners are, are wasting time, you know, fighting, they generally spend substantially more in, in legal fees trying to settle a matter than they would have if they had just paid a lawyer in the beginning to draft, uh, you know, a proper document. You also need to take into account the stress and anxiety that comes in a long drawn out legal battle. And ultimately it's the business itself that suffers. Um, another example would be an owner who, you know, 
decides that he wants to sell his shares to a third party, and now you're potentially in business with a partner that you didn't choose, where a properly drafted buy-sell agreement could have a provision that you know, prevents transfer of shares without the consent of the other shareholders. Uh, or given the shareholder wants to remain in the business, the right of first refusal. Or let's take a scenario where a partner unexpectedly passes away. Now, all of a sudden, you may be in business with the partner's surviving spouse or even their children who have no involvement or active participation in the business. Maybe they're being unreasonable with respect to uh, uh, a purchase price to buy them out. And had you had a, a buy-sell agreement, uh, it could have triggered a buyout of the decedent's interest that could have been funded with life insurance. Same thing if a, a shareholder unexpectedly becomes um, disabled. Now the healthy partner is doing all of the work and running the business, yet the disabled partner or their agent under a power of attorney is reaping the benefits of ownership. A buy-sell agreement could have triggered a buyout upon the partner's disability, and again, the purchase price could have been funded with disability insurance. We always say to begin with the end in mind, while one, everybody's alive, but two, more importantly, while everyone's getting along. As we all know, life happens. Everyone's aligned at the start, but differences can arise. And then you also have to take into account the different factors between, between shareholders or members in, in a company. For example, let's say you know, the two of you were in business together, which you are. You guys have different lifestyles. Um, there's an age gap there. One may be closer to retirement. One may have a child who may potentially come into the business. You have different economic viability. One may be the bank and has the resources to buy the other person out. Whereas if you have a properly drafted agreement, then you know, it helps even the playing field and it can help alleviate or mitigate anything that might happen unexpectedly. Thanks, Colin. So w why don't we keep diving in a little bit to buy-sell agreements and arrangements. And l let's review, I guess, probably the three most common arrangements, uh, an entity purchase, a cross-purchase, and then because we're in the insurance business, let's review what an insurance LLC as part of the buy-sell agreement can look like. Sure. So as you mentioned, there's different types of buy-sell arrangements. The first that you mentioned is what's called a cross-purchase, wherein the owners enter into an agreement amongst themselves and not necessarily with the business. The owners buy each other out upon some of the triggering events that we just talked about. And there can be life and disability policies that are cross-owned. The pros of a cross-purchase agreement would be that upon the purchase, there's an increase in basis equal to the purchase price, which could reduce the capital gain on a future liquidity event. As we'll talk about later in the Connolly case, uh, setting up a cross-purchase agreement can also help avoid the value of the business being included for estate tax purposes. This is generally, you know, we would recommend a cross-purchase agreement if there's, uh, you know, two or three owners in the business. Because one of the negatives of setting up the agreement as a cross-purchase is that it can be onerous or cumbersome if there's more members because you have to own a policy on, on each member. One of the other uh, options is an entity purchase or a redemption agreement, wherein the owners aren't actually entering the agreement among themselves, but rather with the business. Business, upon a triggering event, death or disability, it's actually the business that's redeeming the owner's interest upon one of those set events. So the life or a disability policy is actually owned by the business itself instead of the individual owners. The pros of this type of setup is only one policy is needed on each owner, unlike a cross-purchase agreement where you need multiple policies on the various shareholders. One of the, the negatives of this is generally, depending on the entity type, there isn't that step up in basis that we just discussed on the cross-purchase arrangement. A lot of times what we also see is actually a hybrid of the two where you can take a wait and see approach, where you might give the company the option 
to purchase a departing shareholder or member's interest. And if the company chooses not to, for whatever reason, then the other shareholders then would have the option to, to, to cross-purchase. Do you want to address anything with the insurance LLC? Is that, is that something that you see in the marketplace? Is there, are there some opportunities there for companies to, to consider that? Sure. So uh, an insurance LLC is essentially where the owners of a company establish the completely separate entity. Usually an LLC taxes as a partnership. And the beauty of the insurance LLC is that it can provide the advantages of both the cross-purchase agreement as well as the, uh, the entity redemption. So you would still be able to get the increase in basis while also limiting the number of policies because, again, you have an insurance, you have a separate entity that's owning the policies instead of the individual owners taking out policies on each other. You guys can probably speak to it better than me, but you know, there's also premium flexibility that would allow you to allocate premiums among the owners. And also another benefit would be to potentially avoid you know, transfer for value uh, issues as well. So being in the insurance business, obviously our participation here is providing insurance contracts, life and disability policies to help fund that purchase should a life or disability event be triggered. And you know, one of the things that we run into is the, um, the financial underwriting is actually quite different issuing a life insurance policy and a disability specifically for buyout. And the reason is, if there is a uh, triggering death uh, where there's a life insurance policy in place, typically that life insurance uh, in the agreement is used to fund either the, the first portion of the buyout or maybe even the full buyout. We're going to talk about some of the legalities with that. But it's pretty clearly defined that if somebody's dead and there's a triggering event, that there is a buyout there. On the disability side, what makes it a little bit more difficult for us is there's, there's a lot more financial qualification that needs to take place in order to issue the disability insurance policy up front. And then there's, there, there's that backside of that of um, what's the risk uh, and, and premiums. So not going into details or, or a, a deep explanation, that's not the purpose of today's podcast about different types of life insurance policies, but there's all sorts of different contracts that can be issued. Some are short-term oriented, some are long-term oriented. Others can offer ancillary, non-qualified benefits, golden handcuffs sort of structures potentially. Uh, and then on the disability side, because of the likelihood of a claim on a disability policy um, being higher, generally higher than on a life, some of those policies can become fairly cost prohibitive. Sure. But it's something that we always want to talk to our business owner clients about so that they address that issue. And many haven't realized that in that, that operating agreement, there is specifically noted if disability occurs. Then the other question that comes maybe for another podcast, the, the question becomes, how, who determines what the disability is? Is it a short-term disability? Is it a full disability? Is it a total disability? Is there a possibility that the shareholder, the owner can come back at some point in the future? So it becomes a little bit more complicated, but you know it kind of falls right in the of the zone of where we at Newton One uh, spend a lot of our time. All right, so let's pivot now to one of the things that, uh, or, or really what we thought was going to be an interesting uh, discussion from your standpoint. Let's talk about the Thomas Connolly versus United States case. Some of the lessons that were learned, and some of the things that that maybe we all uh, potentially will do differently, or advise our clients differently on moving forward. Sure. So the Connolly case is a somewhat recent case where there were two brothers who owned a family business. One brother owned approximately 80% of the business and the other brother owned 20%. Uh, majority shareholder passes away. There was a buy-sell agreement uh, that required the company to redeem or buy back the shares of upon a brother's death. 
believe the company had $3.5 million of life insurance to fund the buyout in the event of one of the brother's death. And within the buy-sell agreement, it provided two mechanisms to uh, determine the purchase price for the buyout. The first mechanism that the agreement provided for when determining the valuation of of a member's shares was that the the owners could essentially certify each year or come up with an agreed-upon value. Uh, and then you would attach that agreed upon value as an exhibit to the to, to the agreement. We see that in a lot of agreements that was you know much more common many years ago. But in the event that the shareholders either neglected or failed to agree on a, a, an annual valuation, then they were required to obtain two appraisals to determine the the purchase price. So for twelve or thirteen years, the, the brothers never did either, and the estate of the brother who passed away, the executor of the estate, agreed to accept $3 million of life insurance uh, as the buyout for the decedent shares. And he reported that $3 million on the estate tax return. And the IRS audited the return and assessed an additional $1 million of estate tax, where the rationale was uh, was that the value of the business was worth much more than the $3 million that was reported on the return and the value of the life insurance should have actually been included in the valuation. So there's really, there were two issues in the Connolly case. The first is whether the buy-sell agreement controls the value for estate tax purposes. Generally, the fair market value is the price of which property would change hands between a willing buyer and a willing seller. However, Section 2703 of the Code, with respect to buy-sell agreements, it actually permits a buy-sell agreement to to control if it meets certain standards. The first of which is, is there a bona fide business arrangement between the parties? This is a a relatively easy element to satisfy. You're running a family business. You have an agreement in place. The purpose of the agreement is to, you know, control and preserve the family business. So it's pretty easy to check that box. However, the second element is that the arrangement can't be a device to transfer assets or wealth to a family member for less than full and adequate consideration. And this is where the IRS jumped in and said, hey, this was essentially a testamentary device to transfer assets. The parties completely ignored the terms of the agreement. They came up with a valuation on their own. As I mentioned earlier, for 12 or 13 years, they never agreed to an annual valuation. They didn't follow the rules of the agreement and obtain two appraisals prior to reporting the value on the estate tax return. Essentially, there was an arbitrary number that the decedent's estate and the company came up with by reporting that $3 million on the estate tax return. And the failure to follow the agreement in the court's eyes demonstrated that the agreement was really a testamentary device to transfer wealth. It wasn't binding at the decedent's death. And then the third element is whether the agreement terms are comparable to a third-party arm's-length transaction. So had they taken the company or the decedent shares to, to market, would have $3 million been a reasonable value that an unrelated third party would have, uh, would have paid? But really, the court's focus here was on that second element that we discussed, which is whether you know, it was really a, a testamentary device to transfer wealth for less than full and adequate consideration. So in the court's eyes, as I mentioned, the failure to follow the agreement they completely ignored it. Their own conduct demonstrated that, hey, you know, 
yeah, we have this buy-sell agreements in place, but it's mere existence isn't enough to get you over the hump. You actually have to follow the terms of the agreement. That's the reason the agreement's in place. The second issue was whether the life insurance proceeds should have been considered when determining the value for estate tax purposes. The estate argued that the proceeds should have been ignored because they were essentially offset dollar for dollar by a corporate obligation or a corporate liability to pay the departing shareholder per the terms of the agreement. Now, the court actually held that the life insurance proceeds should have been included in the fair market value and that there was a transfer to a beneficiary for less than full and adequate consideration. Now, there's conflicting case law on this. There's another jurisdiction that ruled that the life insurance proceeds shouldn't have been included. But essentially, the reason that we even got to this issue was because they failed to follow the agreement in the first place. I look at this as what, do we, what can we learn from this case study and how, how can Lex Nova Law or whatever firm hypothetically that a client like this is working with, how do, we, how do you deter from that happening? Is it from the insurance side, and obviously I'm biased and this is going to be my example, but we set up annual reviews with our clients to engage with them uh, first and foremost, but also to make sure that what we illustrate from the start is, is close to um, how it's performing over its years. And if adjustments need to be made, they can be made. Is that something where an estate planning attorney or their team of advisors should have been present to say, look, we need to do this so they're not sitting in the situation they are in right now? Yeah, I think that's a, a, a very fair point. Uh, you know, uh, Mark, I think we're all guilty as attorneys, as uh, the insurance planner, you know, whether it's preparing the agreement as the attorney or, or you know, handling the, the initial insurance policy. Once we get the plan in place, not doing a better job of, of following up and make sure that, you know, the plan is actually being effectuated and that the agreement is being followed. A follow-up question there, Colin, is if we are conducting annual reviews and there are annual valuations of the company and the agreement stipulates that there's an insurance policy, there can be an insurance policy in place, and if the value of the company is greater than the insurance policy, and the difference is paid out over a defined period of time. It might be 60 months. It might be 120 months. But as companies grow, again, from the insurance perspective, you know, in many cases, we need to true up that benefit. Absolutely. If the, if the company was valued at five and we wrote a $5 million life insurance policy to fund the death, and then three years later, the company is valued at 15 and we still only have a $5 million policy, you know, shame on all of us for not having that conversation. But I think, you know, as Mark mentioned earlier, that's one of the things that's really table stakes for us is annual reviews, discussions about valuations of companies, and then a, a, a conversation about whether it, it does make sense to, to, again, true up the, the benefit amount so that the remaining shareholders aren't at financial risk if there's been a tremendous growth in the company. And then for that matter, for the estate, if you know, they're relying on the company to be in business and to pay out that difference. And if that creates a financial hardship for the company, then the company might be in trouble. And that may mean that the family or the estate might not receive the proceeds if the company goes out of business. Sure. So you hit the nail on the head. And I think equity is the, is the key point here. Um, you know, what may have been perfectly fine 5, 10, 15 years ago when, you know, the agreement or the plan was initially drafted it might not produce an equitable result today. So our job, certainly as an attorney, is when we meet with a client who's in this situation or they're forming 
an entity is you've got to look at it both from a buyer and a seller's perspective, right? Where one shareholder may benefit from that bargain purchase price, but to touch on what you just said, then whether it's the business or someone's family, they could suffer a true economic loss if we haven't effectively trued up the valuation. You know, I just had a, a, a meeting with a, a, a client a few weeks ago, and uh, we, you know, we're, we're conflicted out, but there's a disagreement between, between two brothers in the family business, and historically our, our firm has served as counsel to the family business. But similar to the Connolly case, there is a, a valuation procedure in that agreement that gives the shareholders, the two brothers, the ability to come up with a value annually. Of course, over the past 25 plus years, they haven't done that. And the default there isn't even to go to an appraisal, but rather it looks at the consumer price index, which you know is, is significantly outdated. It, it uses a formula. And there's, there's a, a gap between the true valuation today and what the consumer price index uh, formula shows of like $2 million. So now, you know, we have a client who's, you know, looking to exit the business, but he's still a couple years shy of retirement. Business has gotten so bad with his brother that, you know, he's considering just forgoing it altogether and accepting uh, a significant discount on what he might have gotten had he just been able to hang on for another two years. I'm sure we could go on and on about the cases you have and, and the help you, you and your firm provide for um, such business owners, but we're, we're coming up on time. So is there anything else you want to add that we didn't touch on um, before we close this, this recording out? I don't think so, Mark. Just again, I, uh, I appreciate the invitation and uh, it's always a pleasure to, to spend time with you. I, uh, I look forward to uh, helping business owners uh, avoid some of the uh, potential issues that, that we discussed today. Thanks, Colin. Thank you. Material and opinions voiced are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what is appropriate for you, please contact a member of our team.